Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. It's been a pretty quiet week, obviously, after the, the Liverpool game and after the previous couple of games has been fairly quiet, you know, media-wise. So much so that the, the team and the players and the manager have, have actually fled. They've left the country. One man's warm weather training is another man's, let's get the fuck out of here for a while. And uh, and that's what they've done. And hopefully, while they're there, they can recharge their batteries and come back and figure out the, the basic thing about football, of course, which is putting the ball in the back of the net. Nevertheless, there are bits and bobs that we can talk about, make a conversation from to, uh, to bring you a podcast this week. I'm going to put this out on Thursday just because why not? There's been nothing going on, so we might as well fill the gap with a little bit of uh, a little bit of audio goodness for you. With me today, delighted to welcome back to the show one of the co-hosts of the Stadio podcast. It's Ryan Hun. Hello, Ryan. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, thanks good. for uh, getting me back on. It's been a while. It has. Because uh, I, I keep being like, oh, sorry, man, I can't do tomorrow. Can we, can we do it? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Listen, no yeah. stress. This is too much... Too much real stuff to stress about in the world rather than there is. this kind of the, trifling. The Arsenal Football Club, is that what you're going to say? <laughs> well, Arsenal Football Club, you know, w- when can you do a podcast, that kind of stuff. You know, we, we, we've got bigger fish to fry in this crazy world of mm. ours. But let me mm. ask you, have you got any warm weather training in this, uh, this uh, time of the year? Absolutely not, no. no. It's definitely not the climate for <laughs> warm weather training at the moment. Although I've heard, you know, I've been seeing a lot of the benefits of, you know, cold therapy. So, you know, cold baths and plunges and stuff oh, like that. So, yeah. so instead of doing that, I've just been going for walks because I think that yeah. kind of creates the similar, a similar sensation. What about you over in Dublin? Have you oh, yeah, it's, had many you know, beach days this year? Yeah, it's <laughs> tropical. We're there every day, you know. <laughs> Sunshine shorts. You know, think, think uh, Baywatch meets oh, the Beach Boys. Yeah. It's that. It's That's what it's like here all the time, you know? Yeah, sounds great. That's why everyone comes to Ireland on their holidays. Now my, my mind is automatically <laughs> imagining just uh, what the soundtrack or the theme tune to the Irish Baywatch would be, you know? Oh, my God. There's go, a good question. There is a good... Yeah, we'll have to get some suggestions on that. Has to be an Irish artist, I suppose. So, yeah. not you two, folks. If you can think of one. <laughs> yeah, anyone who says Beautiful Day by you two gets, <laughs> gets, gets blocked. <laughs> so, let me ask you this. Where do you stand on the, uh, on the current state of play at Arsenal in the, in the sort of, oh, it's been about a couple of weeks, but we're still pretty good versus, well, just burn it all down. It's fucked. You know, we might as well give up. Um, I am <laughs> very, very good. Um, what's the word? Uh, I'm glad of the break. Mm. I think it was, it couldn't have come at a better time, really. 
Um, I think the Liverpool game, going glass half full on it, I think I'm I'm glad that that was a cup game and not a league game because I think going into this break, if that was a league game, I think would have made the uh, the existential debate probably even more existential and more yeah. heated. I mean, 20 games in, five points off top. I mean, I think we we would have taken that last season. I think we probably would have taken that at the beginning of this season. And I'm strangely, well, not strangely, I suppose, because people always tease me about being too zen when it's all going to shit, but I'm all right, actually. I think that few seasons ever go without a bump. Few seasons do any side completely tear the league apart unless you're Manchester City. And I think actually in most of the games, if not all the games that we've lost in the league, we could have got something from, if not won. Mm. So I know that's uh, a lot of coulda, woulda, shoulda, ifs and buts and whatnot, but I'm, I've said this a few times. I, I said this on Stadio and I said this on Wrighty's House to Ian is that I think I'm more, I'm a little bit more encouraged by the fact that Arsenal are creating and actually playing okay against uh, setups that I don't think Arsenal have been used to playing against in the last few years. Um, it's actually something I was I kind of wrote down to talk to you about about you know the big goal drop off. I've been reading the blog this week, obviously, like mm. I do always, and um, I think a lot of it is is interesting that we're just facing completely different um, defensive setups this year compared to the the opening half of last year, where I think we caught everyone on the hop a bit. So people are a lot more expecting of the the threat of Arsenal this season, and I just. The, while I'm encouraged but by the way that Arsenal have played in a lot of games, obviously the finishing is a major, major talking point and a big concern. I think my main concern isn't actually the finishing, it's maybe the the pace at which Arsenal are adapting to the newfound problem. I'd like that to move along a little bit. How do you mean exactly? Do you mean sort of being a little more adaptable in-game? Yeah. To certain scenarios? Like if it's not working, I mean this could tie into a discussion about the the substitutes, timing of substitutes, mm. things like that, which, you know, I'm sure everybody's spoken about and has an opinion on. But, you know, is there maybe a need to be a little more creative with what we do yeah. in scenarios where even if, you know, for example, we are playing quite well, which I think we did against Liverpool. Certainly in the first half, we played very yeah, well. Really Second well. half was more even. I think Liverpool, you know, were definitely better. But... Uh, the unwillingness maybe to change it when you're not playing particularly well versus, you know, I don't want to hold Jurgen Klopp up as like, this is what Mikel Arteta must do. But he, he made decisive changes in that game and he was a little bit brave because he played some young players. And Liverpool were playing well. They were playing well. And when he made those two changes with those two young lads, it was still nil-nil. Yeah. So there is, you know, maybe something to be said for, I don't know. Look, I think Mikel Arteta has done amazing work. Yeah. I think there is an inherent... Do I want to say conservatism or cautiousness maybe within him at times? I feel like he could let go of. Yeah, there's a lot more at stake for him now than there was a couple of years ago. You know, um, although, you know, arguably you could say there was a lot at stake then because mm. he hadn't, he didn't have the track record. And I think his job was under threat a lot more than it would be this season if Arsenal don't, I don't know, achieve their ultimate goals. But the Klopp thing's an interesting one because if you think back to the Manchester United game, I think it was the Manchester United game, he made that switch in the second half that just didn't work at all tactically and then mm. actually just switched back. 
he didn't he didn't kind of hold on for the rest of the game because that was the change that he did. He realized after about 15 minutes that Liverpool had lost total control of a game that they had full control of. Mm. And then just changed it again. And I think that maybe it leads on to a discussion of depth because I think Liverpool have more game changes on the bench than Arsenal have had this season. But also how you use those substitutions. And I think with Mikel Arteta, usually you can kind of, I mean, especially someone like yourself who covers Arsenal day in, day out, you can probably predict before a game who will come on and when. Mm. Nine times out of ten. And if that doesn't happen, I think the instances of when a really interesting tactical switch has really, really worked for Arsenal, by memory, I'd have to go back and check, obviously. But there have been... It's not something that Mikel Arteta is known for yet. No. And he might be because obviously he's still very early on in his career. This is, you know, you're talking about Klopp who's been, what is he, like 20 odd years into a, 20 years into a managerial career now. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, um, I think that what I meant before about adapting to the problems in front of them, I think that it feels a little bit Goldilocksy for Arsenal at the moment. Everything has to go right for Arsenal to score a significant amount of goals. Um, I think the Brighton game in, out of the recent run of games was probably the most encouraging game because Brighton are, have have hurt us a few times over the years and they've hurt many teams. And I think Arsenal just played really, really well. And apart from that one Pascal Gross chance in I think that was the second half, yeah, they didn't really create anything. And Arsenal just kept playing, kept playing, but moved with a fluidity and, and a pace which was which kind of spoke of a bit of confidence that they were going to win the game. And I think in, in other games this season and in games recently, that confidence or or pace of movement with like moving the ball around, I think has not been there. Yeah. It's it's so interesting to think about that Brighton performance because I, I think it's one of the best overall performances that Arsenal have put in this season, mm. dominating a team who have caused us and all kinds of teams problems. Yeah. And... At the same time, it, it was sort of a precursor of what was to come. Like, I didn't look at that Brighton game and say, well, what we've seen in this game is going to manifest itself in a kind of negative way over the coming weeks. Because, you know, it was, I think I posted at like halftime in the in the Brighton game on Twitter, something like everything but the goal. That's yep. what it was. Yep. Right. And it was everything. We did everything. We made the chance. We just couldn't finish them. But we got there. We got over the line. There was the goal from Gabriel Jesus, the late goal from Kai Havertz. The Pascal Gross chance came in the middle of that, which I suppose, if you look at it now, could have had a fairly seismic effect on that game and that result. And people would have said, well, you know, Arsenal don't have anyone to blame but themselves because if you make that many chances and you don't score the goals, then, you know, the inevitable will happen at this level of football. Mm. But I didn't really see it playing out the way it has done over the last few weeks you know certainly the West Ham game and I think even the first half against Liverpool were almost repeats not quite the same but but in that sort of uh, same bracket of performance where it's mostly good until you get to that final part yeah and I think you know Arsenal are no different from any other team in the Premier League and they're you know margins are margins right but the was it the Saka hit in the post against West Ham was West Ham I think right yeah and you know it's as close a margin as the Pascal Gross chance for Brighton. So sometimes they go for you, sometimes they don't. I think Arsenal have also been <laughs> quite unlucky with a couple of decisions 
but have also been on the end of some good decisions as well. And I just think that sometimes it's how they shake down and sometimes you get a little bit of a run. I mean, to be honest, I I personally, <laughs> I talked about this on uh, Stadio the other day about how I, I kind of uh, very jokingly, obviously, don't really class anything between Christmas and New Year as real football. It's almost like a Bermuda Triangle of football for me. <laughs> that it's just whatever happens, happens. I'm not, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel as real as maybe either side of those, which is obviously not an, a not a, a great way for when all the points matter. But I just thought, yeah, it's everyone's kind of knackered. You can kind of see that everyone's knackered. A lot of the Premier League games weren't amazing through that period, and. If, if Arsenal are going to have a run of poor results or a collection of a couple of games where they probably should have got more out of, even the Villa game away, I think Arsenal should have got more out of. Oh, yeah. And um, I'd rather have them condensed in one thing so it doesn't repeat itself or, or drag on through the rest of the season. Uh, and I think that's probably why the Brighton game will <laughs> will probably be forgotten because it fell in between. Was it in, uh, Apart from that game, the last game Arsenal one was the Luton game which now looking mm. back was the beginning of everything changing because that game was so weird in the sense that Arsenal had done really score a lot of goals away from home had been defending really really well up to that point Luton didn't really score a lot of goals at home um, and it seemed to be this really really wild game that you know the thing with Mikel Arteta missing the Villa game because of over celebrating and all this stuff it just seemed to that was the a, a bump that I think Arsenal couldn't really regain control from sure. since um apart from that Brighton game which is now looks like such an anomaly which is weird really we uh, i asked our discord um for some questions for some talking points on this because you know i think the last thing anyone needs is to uh, hear a podcast another 40 45 minutes an hour of people <laughs> trying to figure out why arsenal can't score goals but i did quite enjoy this one i thought at first it was it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek from Garza, who says, with all this talk about goals, shouldn't we be focusing on getting more assists? Which I thought was quite good. I thought it was good. Good gag. But then, is it? Is there something in that? In that the delivery that we've uh, been so successful from, you know, from our fullbacks, from Martinelli, from Saka, um, you know, hasn't quite been at the level that it needs to be. You know, the... Mm. Uh, think about the goal against Brentford, where yeah. it was tough going. It was a struggle against Brentford. And nobody thinks about the struggle because we got a last-minute winner, but it was a quality delivery from Bakayo Saka onto the back post where Kai Havertz was there to actually head it into the goal and not wide or over. Which not is you know, strength. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think that's you know something we should obviously do more of. The on-target stuff is, is very beneficial if you do want to score goals. But, I mean, is there something to be said about the quality of final ball as part of what this goal scoring uh, drought, if you want to call it that, um, has has become. Yeah, that's why I don't really like the, oh, Arsenal have had this many shots and not scored from, because it doesn't really matter. The shots thing doesn't, we're now deep into, I don't want to kind of, whenever I go with stuff like this, like, hey, Craig Burley in the background is just shouting nerd nonsense, right? But we're in the, we're in, you know, data is quite freely available and a lot of people use it to, to, um, you know, form arguments or see how their eye test works with football. And I think that it's more about creating better chances than just creating chances. And I think that that's kind of one of the things that leads into the, the thing I was saying before about 
figuring out the the solution to problems in real time and that's the thing that i would like arsenal to, to do more of and maybe kind of figure out quicker because everyone in that team is really fucking good like they are if you look at some of the the lineups no disrespect to any of them down the line uh down th- in the years gone by but this is a really 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 good starting 11 from front to back and there are some really clever players in there. There are some unbelievably gifted players. And I think it's just more about like, guys, you are, <laughs> sound like Pep, you're so good. So, so good. So, so good. good. But what what you have been trying to do for an hour isn't working. Let's maybe hold onto the ball a little bit longer before creating a overload or switching it. There's been some some moments of impatience that have, have uh, like annoyed me a little bit more than maybe the over, the, the actual results have. Um, and I think that goes towards to, to creating the quality of chance. There have been a couple of times because I think with the Martinelli thing is a really interesting one and Saka as well. I think Saka, you mentioned it on the blog and I totally agree that there's a there's a, a slight lack of sharpness with him. I mean, understandably for the amount of football that he has played over how, how, <laughs> mm. since he was probably about eight. But um, with Martinelli, I think you're seeing the result of just not being, teams not giving Arsenal enough space in behind like they were last season. Arsenal not being able to break early on in games because teams are very, very well equipped to, to set up for for that and to stop that. They know that that was the main threat which took teams half a season to figure out last season. And post-World Cup, and when teams started actually switching on to Arsenal being a title threat, Arsenal struggled to break some teams down. Um, I think Martinelli is and Saka, you're also seeing a little bit of a result of a lack of depth because being able to rest those guys for start uh, to start, which you don't want to rest your best players all the time, but there have there will be occasions where, for example, it's like well, these guys are just going to sit so deep that we might actually need to figure out another way to break these people down and then introduce you late on in the game against tired defenders. Because if you're a def- if you're a right back mm. and you see Martinelli coming on after an hour, you're like, what? Like really? And I think it's. It's not easy to defend against those guys, but I think it's a little bit easier at the moment to defend against them from the jump as yeah. opposed to late on in games. I mean, you 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 do the the podcast with Ian, and mm. he he is looking for a killer. He, he wants is. a killer. Does he want a killer number nine? Does he want a killer wide player? Is it just any killer? Is he is he uh, open to a variety of? killers or is it one specific killer he's looking for and you know to what extent do you think i mean the obvious uh, thing to say is that a good player brought into a squad makes a squad and a team better usually unless you do the old aspria thing um when you're 12 points uh, <laughs> clear at the top of the table like newcastle did some years ago but you know where if i were to ask you would you pick your ideal killer of any gonna, description. If, if we're going to bring one player in in January, for example. Yeah. I would like a wide forward more than a number nine. I would, I would I would actually go back and probably I would like a, another central midfielder first. But if we're talking about people that can really hurt you in the final third, I think getting a really good wide forward who could <laughs> ideally, and I know this is, and nowadays this is the kind of thing that will cost you so much money, but a wide forward who who could operate ideally on either flank, I just think creates a little bit more competition. I mean, we saw the Trossard effect last season. 
Trossard coming in last season, I think, was really important because it gave Arsenal another option in a position that they'd become quite predictable. And his, um, I know he's not playing so well this season, we're going to talk about him, but his flexibility in the back half of last season was really important for Arsenal. I think this season, I think it's tricky to go and get a deadly number nine in January unless you're going to get one on loan. And I just don't think they're around. I think that if you were going to be super, super cheeky, Napoli's season is derailing to such an extent that maybe you could just be really, really cheeky and be like, well, if Osman's going to go, we'll take his wages, blah, blah, blah. I don't think in a million years it will happen. But I'm saying that is the, I'm, I'm saying that using that absurd example is to be like, that's the kind of player that Arsenal are going to have to go after. But as we saw with Kai Harberts, integrating a new piece into an attacking setup takes time. And it took a lot of people to learn how, <clears throat> excuse me, how they all play. And you're adding a little bit of jeopardy if bringing in a, a focal point up front in January. Mm. I think back to um, Jose Antonio Reyes in the Invincible season and him coming in, I think just gave Arsenal options. And that is the kind of player that I would like Arsenal to go after. Someone who could contribute with goals and assists, but also create a little bit of flexibility in that front three. Um, Something different, like a different yeah. style of player. Yeah. Like Reyes, Arsenal, look, were blessed with incredible yeah. forwards at that time with Bergkamp, Henri, there was Wiltord, there was Canu, Jeremy Aliadier, but, but Reyes was something different. I mean, it took him a couple of games to get, um, you know, settled in, had that own goal against Middlesbrough. Yeah. I think it was in the in the League Cup before he scored that amazing goal against Chelsea. But style-wise, certainly he was absolutely something different, you know, to um, to a squad that was, like, blessed with some of the best attacking talent in the world. And I didn't even mention Freddie Jumberg or Robert, Robert no. Perez or what Patrick Vieira could give you going forward as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I think someone like that, to say for argument's sake, could operate on the left-hand side. And when Arsenal have a fully fit squad available, or certain games, for example, where they could play... Jorginho is the holding midfielder, Declan Rice and Martin Erdegaard as the as the two eights, and push Kai Harvitz as the as the as the furthest forward. And then you could create a little bit of a, an option to push Gabriel Jesus out to the right hand side, which gives Arsenal something different. That that's not going to work for every game. But as we've seen this season, Martinelli, Jesus, and Saka doesn't work for every game as a starting three. So yeah, I think it might not be a superstar. It might be something that's a very data-driven signing. But actually, I'm cool with that because in the market at the moment, anyone who is known or anyone who is remotely hype, you're just going to—you're not getting value for money for. No. Um, so I think Arsenal's recruiting over the last couple of years has been really, really smart. I mean, obviously, bar the <laughs> the Raya Ramsdale issue, which is something that obviously has. It's a different. It creates a different problem, but not in in a stylistic sense. It's a great a great signing. I would probably expect a pretty under the radar signing or two in January. I don't think I, anyone hoping for a 
for someone who everyone's got in their, you know, EAFC ultimate team, it's just not going to happen, I don't think. I don't think so either. I mean, I, I think that's a fairly optimistic take, and I hope you're right that there might be one or two under-the-radar signings. Um, but they're going to have to sell. They're going to have to move well, players yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think they will. Um, I just think they're, they're going to have to sell as, as well as they've recruited over the last couple of years, and that's something that I'm mm. still a little bit like, have we really... We haven't passed that test yet. We've done a lot of work to address the the reputation of not being great at signing players over the last decade. I think that the team have done amazing well at executive level over the last few years. They've got to get better at selling. Yeah. I've got a question on that, so I'll come back to you. But cool. you did mention Leandro Trossard. Mm. And we had a question from... Uh, oh, Jesus. I'm even wearing glasses and I can't read this. Uh, JNVFK. Um, no, it's not even him. I need new glasses, <laughs> fuck's sake. This this one comes from, is actually Saka, no Jacka, no Laka. Oh. Apologies to... Um, Great name. JN it was worth it in the end, Andrew. It was, we got I'm glad there. we got there. We got there. Hey, it's still early in the new year. I'm finding my feet again. He says, do you think Trossard has been used and managed effectively? Lots of talk of getting in another winger or forward. After a great start at Brighton last season, uh, or after Brighton last season, I don't know whether at or after, but I think at perhaps. His goal scoring numbers have dipped since he joined us, and Mikel Arteta doesn't seem to trust him. Any thoughts on that? Only three starts in the uh, in the Premier League or no, six starts in the Premier League this season from 16 appearances. Some of those were pretty good, though, I remember, right? When he was playing in that slightly deeper role. Um, his ability to link up play, I think, in the final third is... is Do you mean as the nine or the eight? When he played as the eight. Ah, see, I was not at all impressed by him in that position. I, mean, I don't think it's something I want to see him there forever, but I think mm. in a couple of games I was like, ah, yeah, I can understand that. I think he's... I think there's a thing with with uh, sign-ins where you kind of want um, you want each sign-in to push the depth down a bit, you know. So yeah. someone who was maybe second choice becomes the second and a half choice or the third choice. I'm not overly concerned about Trossard because his importance he, he's he's never been, for example, as important as someone who we really, really, really can't afford to lose. I think he's dipping effectiveness has been a little bit concerning because he always seemed to... Do you remember he made that run where he was coming off the bench and scoring goals or creating? And it was very much like, how do you leave him out, actually, mm. at the moment? doesn't feel like we've had a run of like that from him for a while. But I also think that he's... The minutes that he's get, getting in and the games that he's getting those minutes in, I think have been a little bit harder to to contribute in. So... Again, I know I know this sounds a little bit like I'm sitting on the fence, but I think that he is someone, you know, moving ahead, say for example, next season, he's someone that I would love to be the absolute nailed on starter for, let's say, an easy European tie or an early round of the cup to give the really real marquee players mm. time out of that, that's, that, set, uh, that starting 11. Um. I think his his delivery has been the, one of the really concerning things for me. I, that just I don't know whether I maybe just remember it being better than it was, but I, was it the Villa game where he had the run of just the most atrocious corners? Could well have been, yeah. Um, and I'm kind of a bit like that's an area that I think Arsenal pose a real threat in. I mean, the stats suggest so. Yeah. 
the delivery on 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 set pieces is is now so important for a side that can can be quite dangerous from them. Um, that just seems a bit wasteful. So I think he's maybe in a period where we've gone from him really knowing his place within the squad and where he fits to maybe that not being so clear cut. So I wonder whether they may go for another signing like that that's almost like a little bit of a level up on Trossard. But I, do, I hope he returns to form because I think it's there. Yeah, I do think that's interesting because, yeah, last season his role was relatively uh, singular, if you like. Yeah. And this time around, he's played as the nine. He's played on the left wing. He's played as the left eight. He's been moved around a little bit. Maybe that hasn't helped him. I don't think that excuses not being able to take a corner for about a month. <laughs> no. But, you know, maybe he's got a sore toe or something. I don't know. But I, I, I just wonder if, you know, what we're seeing in terms of end product for from Trossard is kind of who he is and what he has been throughout his entire career. 121 appearances for Brighton, 25 goals. 46 appearances for Arsenal seven goals so you know he's not prolific no. never has been prolific but I think he's at an age and he's experienced enough where um, you know he could potentially give you a bit more but I think the last two or three months I think he has fallen a little bit down the pecking order with Mikel Arteta uh, yeah. which is quite interesting like I was surprised it took him until the 88th minute to get on against Liverpool. Well, this is actually a really interesting point because you would have thought last this time last season, Trossard would have been absolutely nailed on to start on the left-hand side. And it was Reese Nelson who hasn't started a Premier League game since yeah. 2020. And I, who I think actually did quite well. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, yeah. like uh, had that really good run really early on with that amazing pass from Ramsdale. Should have done better with the cutback. But but yeah, that's what I mean. I think that this is the kind of... Um, you want to get the squads to a level where this is the kind of game that you... It's like this is a Leandro Trossard game and define his role a little bit more clearly again because like you say, I think it's become a little bit more um, muddied this season. But mm. I think that's also down to the fact that he he is quite a flexible player. He's quite versatile. I just think that maybe... I wonder the, the knock-on effect of... The Kai, the Kai Havertz into integration. I wonder whether that played a little bit of a part because, you know, you're not just you're not just dealing with putting a new player in who's finding their feet. You're you're trying to build all those relationships around them. So it's not just the, that mm. position that it affects. And I wonder how moving Trossard around while also trying to figure out a, a you know, Kai Havertz's role. I think I wonder whether he maybe suffered because of that what's your what's your Havertz hot take where do you stand on what you've seen from him in the in the first half of the season I mean I think <laughs> I actually thought he was playing a lot better than people gave him credit for when they were hammering him early on um I also think that I mean I watched, we watched so much of him at Leverkusen and honestly one of the most gifted players I've ever seen come through in the Bundesliga there was a game actually that I watched him and I'm kind of going back a bit here, but when the Bundesliga came back after COVID, I went to a, well, they called it a Geisterspiel, so a ghost game, they called them here, at the Olympiastadion in Berlin when they uh, Hertha played Leverkusen. So eerie, it was the eeriest game of football I've ever been to, being in the Olympiastadion empty. But I watched Kai Havertz for 15 minutes, just watched him and that was it. And there was never a moment that he wasn't within like five yards of space, just constantly, just like, kind of ghosting around a little bit and I could see 
elements of that in some of his early appearances for Arsenal. I think he just looked really nervous and a bit timid because he's not... Um, I don't think he was helped by the fact that he had Declan Rice coming in at the same time, who is very much like, give me the ball and I'm going to like do something, move this 30 yeah. yards upfield. And like, it's very much an alpha, you know, in that sense, in a football sense, whereas mm. I don't think Harvard's is at all. I also think that Mikel Arteta asks his players to do so many. I mean, it was quite, you know, it was quite well known. Declan Rice was talking about how how much information he's had to take in. And Granit, I think Granit Xhaka said something last season about how Mikel Arteta is a freak in the good in a good way with how much information he gives you. I think he was probably asking Harvards to do like three or four things that were really quite boring because he was, he was quite impressive from the front in defensive sense. And I think he was quite integral to how Arsenal were pressing from the front. As soon as he started putting the ball in the back of the net, all the noise just went away. And... Yeah, I know you want your your forward players to score goals, but I think that if he'd scored a couple more early on, I think people would have given him a lot more credit for for the good stuff that he was doing, which maybe wasn't mm. wasn't too sexy, you know. No, no, I I mean, look, I think there's a obviously a collective um, ethos to what Mikel Arteta wants from his players. It's structured, mm. it's organized. People are in their lanes, in their spaces, and and all the rest. And I don't think he was. He was found wanting in that regard. I'm just curious as to what what comes next for him because mm. I think maybe where he has been most effective for Arsenal, his finishing was off against Liverpool, but I think you know maybe his all-round play in that game was good. I mean, he put one, should have been on a, on a, what do you say? What's the word I'm looking for here? I don't know. Um, it was a very good cross that Gabriel should have headed in that Bakayo Saka hooked okay. over. You know what I mean? He's saying that he should have had an assist. I, I'm he's, saying he's, he's, he's doing his best. To, he's doing his best to create more assists for Arsenal. Yeah, that's it. More assists, as the yeah. the question went earlier on. I got the memo. Yeah. But but if we are talking about doing something a little bit different with the team, with the players that we have, at least for now, then Havertz is the nine, if that's what you want to call him. You know, I think he's maybe more effective there at the moment for Arsenal than than at the eight. But that, of course, leaves a big eight-shaped hole, eight-shaped problem that that we we still have yet to solve with or without Havertz. I think I, I think he's been all right, you know, mm. but we missed. We certainly missed what what Granit Xhaka brought to the role last season. Um, for sure, I mean, and if you think though as well, like in terms of hierarchy within the squad, Granit Xhaka was a was essentially a captain with a very senior role in the squad who had been um, backed by what three managers in a row, mm. and <laughs> and I, I kind of saw a little bit of that in Harvard's where okay, Mikel Arteta is backing him here, and he's he's blatantly doing a lot of stuff that he wants him to do and he knows that maybe the goals will unlock but he's never been the best finisher he's never been an unbelievable finisher he's not he's not a striker i think he he's always worked best you know as a second striker at most but mm. usually like a kind of number 10 floating around um and i do wonder if if for example there was a well, let's say for argument's sake, Victor Osman's playing up front for Arsenal this season and, <laughs> and he's banging in 20, like he's already got 15 goals, 16 goals. It's a nice argument, yeah. He would demand so much attention that I think that that's, that's the kind of spaces that Harvard's operates in. And I think with, with, unfortunately, what we've got this season is the four, for, like the foremost forward players 
aren't mega goal scorers, any of them. So it it creates a little bit of a problem when, you know, last season I think Arsenal were quite quite fortunate in the sense that the collective was all chipping in to a level that we hadn't really seen them un- unlock at before. Mm. And this season they're not. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, again, I think that he, I'm not saying by any means he's, he's um, that some of the criticism hasn't been valid. I think it obviously has. I think that there have been a lot of things that he could have done better a couple of times that he's way too passive. But also I think we've seen that that run that he went on when he, he came back from international duty, played at left back, he scored a couple of goals on international duty, had that run for Arsenal. He seemed like a different player. It was almost kind of like, okay, I've got the confidence. I know I can... Mm. do some real damage um but then just as he was hitting that that kind of level it seemed that the whole team dropped off you know so it's it's been it's a bit unfortunate yeah okay we have a question here from uh chargui who uh, asked about the january transfer window he says some say the january transfer window is cheating and managers and teams should do their business in the summer then no longer have an opportunity to invest again logically the argument is that it favors big clubs like ours who don't necessarily he says don't actually need the help but i don't think that's true but maybe don't necessarily need the help might be a better way of putting it where do you stand on that discussion he said i i obviously appreciate the opportunity to address the needs of a team but i could do without all the transfer talk mid-season it could also also be an incentive to try and work out things more on the training ground or internally rather than the transfer market how would you feel if you know tomorrow an edict came down from on high that said january no transfers you know you you go into a season with what you have and what you have you hold until the end of the season is is that fair for everyone would it benefit bigger clubs more than smaller clubs I mean, there's another argument as well that bigger clubs can take players from smaller clubs at key points in the season, which leave them, you know, in difficult situations. Mm. I'm, or do honest, you enjoy I, it? Do you enjoy the kind of no, sort of potential no, no, no. or the madness or the... No, the, I really don't like it at yeah, all. But, but what happens if, you know, tomorrow there's like, there's an Orn bomb and, and David drops you know, a, a bombshell that Arsenal are going to sign like X player or Y player. You're not going to be like, oh, yeah, give me well, some I take that. back everything I said. About <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's, to be honest, I haven't actually ever thought about an alternative as opposed to just being like, oh, okay, right, the transfer window's open. Here we go. Mm. Oh, I didn't even mean to say here we go. That's a horrible pun <laughs> on transfer window. But um, it's, it's my least favourite. I mean, obviously, I love the possibility of new players coming into Arsenal or seeing players move elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, Moose and I covers quite a lot of European football and Stadio and seeing seeing those kind of moves is uh, is really fun. I don't like... I, I, Janu- the January transfer window is not my favourite thing in football by any means. I think there's an interesting thing here though where maybe you could open the window but make it loan only, um, mm. which I think could be quite fun because I think that it, sometimes it can I mean the Premier League is just such a such a behemoth that it has the destab like the potential to destabilize so much of European football within a month in January I think we saw it last season right there was a big I think I think it was a big January window last year might be wrong but um I I don't like that aspect of it at all 
So I think loans could be quite fun because I think the two, the two most interesting signings so far that I've seen is obviously Timo Werner going to Spurs on loan and Jaden Sancho going back to Dortmund on loan. Mm. Two really, really interesting signings for me. But you know that there's a little bit... Um, there's a little bit less pressure on them because they know that it's only a loan and they're very much there to do a job for now. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not wild about the January transfer window. I I think it can probably... I think the, the cons of it vastly outweigh the pros. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I think it's just so ingrained in the industry now yeah. that there would be such pushback because... You know, there's a business aspect of the transfer window that people have their entire livelihoods based around yeah. moving players, um, you know, agents and agencies and things like that. And I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying it is a, a fact that it's a chance for for players to move. And I, I, I suppose I would look at it maybe as well from a player perspective, like if you are at a club and you're not playing and it gets to January and you've got no way of changing your trajectory. Yeah. That must be very, that would be very difficult, I think, for players. And I think there are quite a lot of players. There might even be some players at Arsenal right now who are thinking, well, yeah, January, it would be nice if I could move. At least I have the option. So I think, I think about it from, from that perspective. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I thought of it more of a kind of a in terms of the actual, you know, all the noise around it and the and the, mm. the knock-on effects. But yeah, from an individual player point of view, I mean, you'd hope that uh, you know, in my little kind of loan scenario, you'd hope that they'd still be able to get those moves. It would or probably, hopefully get them easier. It, if, well, yeah, yeah. Loans it could well less. be easier, couldn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. You know, if if it's like a question of loan, cover some of the wages, cover most of the wages, yeah. you know. Because there's, I mean, there's nothing There's nothing more, well, I mean, there's, you know, in a, <laughs> relatively speaking, there's, there is something quite heartbreaking about seeing a really, really talented player who's just frozen out somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at like Donny van der Beek going to Eintracht in, in this window, I think as well, is, is a really, really exciting move because... Um, they're an interesting club I attract and you know anyone who doesn't watch the Bundesliga I'd recommend them being one of the sides that they you know check in on because yeah. they, there's the, the amount of people who come through there are so interesting and they're they have they, they sign really well and he's I mean we all reminisce about that unbelievable Ajax side that you know just like went to the Bernabeu and absolutely bossed it and he was a massive part of that and seeing his trajectory since has just been so from a neutral's point of view, I know, you know, I have to come into this podcast with my Arsenal hat on. Sure, from sure. From a neutral's point of view, it's just been, it's a real shame to see players like that just not have the career that looked so promising, you know? Yeah, players who can move to the wrong club like he, I mean, he's 100%. a guy who should have moved, you know, some time ago, it's fair yeah. to say. But even like the move to Everton didn't work out. Yeah. And you were a bit like, oh man, actually, are, are you one of those people who should have just stayed put? Yeah. Uh, not that it's on them a lot of the time, you know, clubs like Ajax and Dortmund, you know, with Sancho, for example, I think they a lot of that sell, original yeah. the Sancho move was Dortmund pushing him to go. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, yeah, I'm a very, very long answer to uh, a question about the January transfer window. But yeah, it's not, I, in short, it's really not my favourite time of the yeah. year at all. I mean, the other thing about the loan market is that it can be expensive. I think people have yeah. an assumption that, okay, X player at X club 
isn't wanted, someone will take him on loan, they'll pay his wages, but but very often there's a fee involved yeah. to take that player. I remember, was it the, who was the guy at Atletico Madrid? Was it Yann- Yannick Carrasco, I think we were after. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then I think we were very much in the market for Perisic, uh, Ivan yep. Perisic. But the loan deal at that time would have been, I think the loan fee was something around $6 million, which is crazy. You know, $6 yeah. million to loan a player for six months. As it was, I think we paid something in the region of $5 million to loan Dennis Suarez, who barely kicked a ball and, and was no good anyway. So, you know, the... The loan market can be a bit hit and miss, you know. You've got to yeah, go look maybe know, at Martin. can't always o- be Kim Kallstrom's man. Yeah, like, or Martin just, Odegaard's. You know, just, yeah, Odegaard's, this is like yeah. a, an amazing one. I think uh, easy to forget he came in on loan. And, you know, that Brentford game and Arsenal lost 2-0 away and he he was back at Real Madrid. That's crazy. You know, I think I think uh, that might be just something to keep an eye on, that maybe if there's a talent at a club who isn't quite doing it, if... Arsenal can convince Martin Odegaard to, you know, join from Real Madrid at a time, let's remember, when I think it was probably a little more difficult to convince somebody that Arsenal was the yeah. right place to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe there's maybe there's something out there. And let's not also ignore the fact that if we didn't have the January transfer window, none of us today could be sitting here questioning everything that we think we know about football as Eric Dyer moves to Bayern Munich. Oh, can I be that guy? Can yeah, I? Yeah, please. <laughs> I think I think I think they actually really need him. They really need what, a Well then uh, what what is wrong with Bayern Munich? Give me that in a nutshell. If they really need Eric Dyer, there's something wrong. Well, they had a they had a few injury uh, defensive injuries earlier in the season to the point where they were talking about putting I think Joshua Kimmich and Leon Goretzka as center back and it was they've struggled a little bit defensively this season and like rushed Upamecano back for the for the Dortmund game, which I was at, and actually, luckily, he played really, really well. But that, for example, I don't think that he is going to be starting every single game for Bayern Munich, right? But mm. I think um, uh, I, I I saw a couple of people saying that obviously he's only there because you know Harry Kane's there. Get me a friend, please. Yeah, but also, <laughs> I I don't know. I I'm quietly. I've always, again, I don't know what it is. I think it's maybe like rooting for the quote-unquote underdogs, but I've always been a little bit more uh, up on Eric Dyer than maybe a lot of people have, Cert- have been. Certainly a I, lot I of people of the, listening to this podcast. About anyway, him not yeah. playing for your club, right? <laughs> um, but I'm, I, I saw that move and I was a bit like, huh, there's a reason, there's a reason Bayern have done that. Um, so I'm intrigued. The fee's low. I think the league might suit him quite well um and obviously i'm looking forward to the next time i'm on at the end of the season when it's failed dramatically and i've been like oh sorry yeah my take on that was was quite bad that's okay yeah i don't know i'm i'm also a little bit like i feel like sometimes moose and i have to really fight the bundesliga's corner because uh you know especially uh with a lot of friends who are just like oh yeah but you know it's a bit Oh, what a, it's not it's not real league and anyone can do that in the Bundesliga and it's like no actually it's really good like it's really fun like so I'm intrigued to see what Eric Dyer does at Bayern. All right, so. well maybe that will give us a, a true measure of, of of his level and and perhaps the level of the Bundesliga. I don't know. Perhaps I mean, my level as well. <laughs> maybe your level of analysis as well. <laughs> far be it for me to say, Ryan. 
Let me let me finish up with this one, right? Uh, yep. It comes from Master Johnbury, and he says, given that Edu's job is to ensure the team remains competitive for several years, as he is now sporting director, of course, should he be putting pressure on Arteta to not drive the value of our talented squad players into the ground? I worry that we might end up repeating the mistake of Ozil and Aubameyang with Emil Smith-Rowe and Kieran Tierney and Reese Nelson ruin our bargaining position by making it obvious to the world that we don't value them. Um, I think Kieran Tierney's move to Real Sociedad was actually a big sign that Arteta very much values him and his ability as a player because I think he also understood that he needed to play and that he maybe couldn't couldn't give him those minutes there. Especially when you think that, you know, Arsenal signed Yuri and Timber, who was going to be the left back this year. Um, I think this current group is a little bit different to the Ozil Aubameyang era, because I think that was a lot more about, there is a lot we have to fix here, and we're almost going to have to strip the whole thing back. I don't know if you've seen The Bear. Do you watch The Bear? I do, yeah. I've watched The Bear, yeah. No spoilers, but when the uh, reefer becomes a a full gutting of yes. the restaurant in season two, I kind of feel that's what... A lot of us were expecting a refurb and what Arsenal actually needed was a, was a full gut of the full structure and the squad and the personnel and the methods and the philosophy. I think now, you know, there isn't that problem in terms of ego compared to to back then so we wear suits now exactly yeah i'm glad that arsenal wear suits again you know yeah but i mean what, just like just like fuck it is it is um it is an interesting one though because i think there is a difference between ozil and Aubameyang, two players in the very much the september of their careers on on massive wages who inevitably as as the finance aspect of of the pandemic hit football clubs became really really difficult to move they were difficult already but like basically impossible when um, football finances were i think that's something people forget maybe you know that the the pandemic had such a big impact on football finances not just yeah. in the in the premier league but across europe and i think many clubs are still kind of struggling uh, with that and then you have the other players like like okay, you don't need to tell Kalasinac or Mustafi that you you value them because you know you don't, and they're not good enough, and you need to get rid of these guys. So those were sort of right. Here you go. Uh, here's your carriage clock away with you. Thanks very much, and we'll move on and go in, in, in a different direction. But players like Smith Rowe, like Tierney, like Nelson, potentially quite lucrative if they're profile is is high enough i i wonder about the conversations that you might have you know between a manager and a sporting director where he's like you know if these guys got a few more minutes then in the summer there's probably a bit more of a market for them and we can bring in a few extra quid and then we can spend that money particularly if you're bringing in money for i don't want to see him go but if you get money for smith row it's I'm not saying it's all profit because you put money into training the player, but academy players, you're not offsetting any kind of transfer fee. So that that conversation where 
the strategy of how you invest and reinvest and how you you generate funds to to put back into the squad, it must be one they have, right? But I mean, Edu can't say to Mikel Arteta, right, this week you've got to pick Emil Smith Rowe. This week you've got to pick uh Reese Nelson. This week you've got to, you know, bring Kieran Tierney back from his loan in Spain and play him for three games and everyone will remember he's a he's a decent player and we can get some money for him, blah, blah, blah. That can't happen. But there must be at least some kind of uh, strategic conversation that these guys have about, you know, how do you maximize the, the value of a player? How do you do that? And how do you do that and remain as competitive as, as you would like to be when you're the manager of a football club? Or, or, or does Mikel Arteta just say, well, look, my job is pick the team to win the game and whoever plays, plays and like the rest of it is up to you. I don't know, but like it, it seems like at Arsenal there is more of a a, a strategic um, operation going on at football level where where everyone is talking to each other, where it's connected. Edu and Arteta and Mertesacker and uh, Richard Garlick and all these guys, like they're not working in isolation from each other, all doing their own thing. They they have to be part of some kind of, of, of collective idea uh, idea about how you get this football club operating uh, at its maximum level. Yeah, and I think also what, what like the perception of value I find a really interesting thing in football as well because there, were, there was a period where actually signing a player from Arsenal wasn't really that valuable. Arsenal weren't doing particularly well. They weren't particularly cohesive. It was all a bit messy. Um, and I think if you look at the, by comparison, if you look at something, you know, like, like Ferran Torres going to Barcelona from Man City. Mm. Barcelona have been in real trouble financially for a long time, but and they've, I mean, maybe a poor example because their incoming stra- transfer strategy has been really, really confusing over the last couple of years. But the fact that Ferran Torres had been at Manchester City is one of the reasons why they got the fee that they did for him. Mm. Uh, which I think was about 50 million euros. I think now fringe players are perceived to be more valuable at Arsenal than they have been for a long time because of the environment and the coaching setup and an improved reputation. Is that only true, though, if we manage to sell one or two of them? This because is, I, yeah, because <clears throat> I, I I I do tend to agree with your your point in general, but until such time as we, we actually get money in, yeah, yeah, you know, then then we're talking in in abstracts in a way for sure. And I also think that again, the Premier League has has created such a major problem for itself that unless you deal with other Premier League clubs, the money's just not there. So hmm. you know what we think. I mean. For argument's sake, Kieran Tierney's got what uh, two and a half years left on his contract. I think right, twenty twenty six. His contract's up. I think at the end of that season. If you were going to sell him this summer, what would you think his value would be? Like if you were Andrew Mangan, sporting director at Arsenal, what would you value Kieran Tierney at right now? Yeah. See, I, I've got, I ended up with egg on my face with this one because uh, you know during the summer I was thinking like, well, Newcastle are after him, so I'm you know I'm going to try and squeeze as much as I possibly can out of Newcastle. Like I don't think Arsenal will get what they paid for Kieran Tierney. Now I think if you get if you get twenty million for Kieran Tierney, you're doing very very well. 
What was the actual fee that they signed him for? 30, I think. Was it? Yeah, close. Yeah. I think it was 30 or 35. Um, but this is the this is the problem, right? Unless you sell to someone like Newcastle who, like, for example, I think if Arsenal had sold to Newcastle in the summer just gone, they probably would have recouped because Newcastle are at that point where they need to make those signings. They need to make leaps. You, know, you saw the money that they spent on Tonali. Um, that's very much a kind of like, we're, we're here, we're in the Champions League, you know, new ownership. They mm. always go through this run where... You look, actually, it's really interesting. They did a quite, they kind of did an accelerated version of what Manchester City did, where they signed a load of people from clubs around them. You know, they took Dan Byrne and they took Chris Wood, who were, who they were competing against Burnley for relegation at the time when they took Chris Wood. Yeah. And then they moved those guys on and get in other people. I think this is the problem. For Kieran Tierney, would it be best for him to go somewhere else in the Premier League? Maybe, but actually, if you look at how he's been doing, apart from the hamstring injury at Real Sociedad, he's been playing pretty well. They really like him, by all accounts. Imanol is a great coach. The vibe there is, I don't know Kieran Tierney, but what I've heard about him, he strikes me as the kind of player who, very much like Hector Bellerin, in a way, is like, actually, I want to play somewhere that feels right as well. Mm. Um. I mean, there are far worse places to play than living in San Sebastian oh and playing God. for Real Sociedad. And, yeah. you know, it's, to be honest, if you're going to live anywhere in Spain as a Glaswegian, San Sebastian is probably a good place because climate-wise, at least you get a little bit of a glimpse of Glasgow. You do, you get some grey days, you get some rainy days, exactly. of course. The North, food is North absolutely Spain. incredible. And that side... All those haggis pinchos. <sighs> exactly. And that side is genuinely exciting and fun like a load of that side Imanol coached in the youth team yeah and it's just there's a really good vibe around that place at the moment you know they're on an unbelievable Champions League run but are they going to be able to pay the same amount of money that even a, like even like Wolves would no no of course not but maybe that's where Arsenal need to get a bit creative if if the rumors involving uh, Zubimendi are, are spot on then 100%. maybe you've got Maybe you've got, you know, a little bit of leverage there where you're saying, yeah. okay, Kieran Tierney likes it there. You like Kieran Tierney. Uh, he signed for £25 million pounds for Arsenal, by right. the way. So if Arsenal value Tierney at £20 million, pounds, whatever it might be, we'll give you Tierney plus X for Zubimendi. You know, I know those deals are really rare. They're a bit championship manager or whatever they might be. But it can be done. It can be done, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe that's part, part of what they've got to do this summer. You know, and that's... Perhaps a, a a roundabout way of extracting value for a player where his value goes into an arrival that then leaves you with a little bit more money to play around with as well. Yeah, and I think if you think about what that loan has given Kieran Tierney this season, it's still giving him Champions League football. They're into mm -hmm. the knockout stages. They're not doing as well in the league. I think the Champions League runners maybe hit their league form a little bit. And obviously the emergence of Girona just kind of has, has meant that, that there's one less side to go into that top four. But if they can put together a bit more of a run, go deep in the Champions League and even, you know, mm. I mean, I have a bit of a soft spot for Real Sociedad, so fingers crossed they get into the Champions League spots again. Then why would you not want to stay there? I mean, unless he's having a dreadful time, which I just can't imagine 
He is no. a bit of a homebird. He is a bit of a, yeah. a um, yeah. you know, I think even when he was in London, he, he had some homesickness issues. But maybe, True. you know, as you get a bit older and mature into life and your career, that's something you can overlook, you know, to live yeah. somewhere like San Sebastian, which must be just fucking so amazing. Mate, like, wow. Man alive. So we always, uh, Moose and I sometimes play this game where it comes, it's like a question that we, we get it every six months or so in a mailbag where it's like, you're a professional footballer and you've, you've got to map out your career from when you break into the first team somewhere or where you come through. <laughs> and nine times out of 10, one of us will stick, stick Real Sociedad on. Oh, you've got to, yeah, you've got to it's do just, a few it's years. Just, and... It's like, it's like Stadio Bingo. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, yeah, there you go. And you know, I'll, I'll Porto's on there or something or Benfica. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. Get me, get me into the Basque country. What is the proliferation of Michelin-starred restaurants in that area <laughs> of the world? Uh, <laughs> is it is it is it compatible with the life of a professional footballer? Yes, because they only give you really tight. They give you loads of courses, but they're all really tiny, and none of them are fish and chips. So you don't have to run them off in the summer. You know, well, no, this isn't sponsored by the uh, San Sebastian Tourism <laughs> Board or whatever. No, but, but if they yeah. want to get in touch, you know, we'll just, go and do a scouting video there. Just one of the one of the best. <laughs> places all right well look we better leave it there ryan uh, thank you very much as always we'll talk to you a bit later in the season when we can come back and laugh at the whole uh, eric time <laughs> looking very much forward to it <laughs> thanks for having me andrew <laughs> small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you very much indeed to Ryan. Always a pleasure to talk to him. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Ryan Hun, at Ryan Hun. And he is, of course, the co-host with Musa Akwanga of the Stadio podcast, which you can get as part of the uh, Ringer uh, podcast network. I think you can get it pretty much everywhere. But if you need to check out where exactly, check out stadio.football. That is their website. You get all the information there. So let's leave it there for this week's show. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, as always, for listening, downloading, sharing, subscribing. And all that, James and I will have an Arsecast Extra for you on Monday, whether anything happens between now and then or not. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. Look after each other, and we will talk to you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
Arsenal Football Club have today announced they have serious plans to score a goal in the not-too-distant future. The Gunners have been shooting blanks in recent weeks, but now believe they've found a way to boot it into the net. When asked for details, Chief Executive Tim Timothy Lewis said, Quite so. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.